You're listening to episode 32 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode, we have a special guest joining us. He is someone who grew up with dyslexia, and he's now an author and teacher, amongst other things. Paul Russell is here to talk to us today, and he shares with us his childhood about what it felt like to grow up with dyslexia, and he describes how he learned differently and, and what that meant in terms of strengthening other areas for him. He also touches on how he responded to his difficulties and what that has meant and has carried over into his adult life today. And he also touches on how he responded to any kids who had anything to say about him that was, that was negative, although had anything to do with um, kind of noticing that he, he learned a little bit differently at school. Paul Russell is an inspiring man. He's inspiring to kids who struggle with learning difficulties and their families. And he's also inspiring to educators who work with children who have learning difficulties and giving them some insight into what it was like for him growing up learning differently. If it's the case that you want to learn more about the science behind, I guess, and the the diagnostics behind specific learning difficulties, we have covered that in episode 25. So if that's something you'd like to learn more about, you are more than welcome to tune in to episode 25 of Chat About Children. But for now, let's get on to our chat with Paul Russell. So joining me in today's episode of Chat About Children is Paul Russell. Paul has always been passionate about stories, even before he could read. Determined never to grow up and lose his imagination, he is a teacher, playwright, father, artist and author, but maybe not always in that order. He is passionate about children's literacy and building an appetite within children for the written word. Paul is also a dyslexic. He was inspired to write the children's book, My Story, because as a child with dyslexia, he wasn't supposed to want to read or write, but he did, all because he had one teacher who believed in him and a family who supported his creativity. He is also the author of the 2018 Children's Book Council of Australia notable book called Grandma Forgets, and his latest picture book, The Incurable Imagination, is continuing to inspire imagination within the classroom. Welcome to Chat About Children, Paul. Thank you for having me. Paul, you have defeated the odds. Growing up as a child with dyslexia to then, amongst other things, become a teacher and an author, I'm sure you're an inspiration to many people and it's quite a remarkable journey. So that's obviously inspired your book, My Story. Is that the summary? Pretty much, yeah. It was interesting. When I wrote my first book, it was sort of, it became quite successful and I was talking to another author. It came up that I was dyslexic and they straight away said, wow, that's your second book. <laughs> yeah, it seems quite, it almost seems quite obvious, doesn't it? But if we take it back, and as we said in the intro, you know, there was this one teacher who obviously was played an integral part in your life. Is that what inspired you to follow the teaching pathway? What was it that kind of triggered that pathway for you? Yeah, it was interesting. I almost fell into teaching, sort of. I had this teacher in year 10 who kept me at school because. I was pretty much going to leave at 16 and I was sort of, I had a chef apprenticeship lined up and that was sort of where I was heading. And I always loved writing. And I had this teacher in year 10, it was his first year at my high school and he, he had this assignment for us that was, I'm going to let you write. I'm only going to mark the stories. I'm not going to mark the spelling or grammar or anything else. 
And it was suddenly this freedom that I had to actually write and loved it so much. And at the end of the year, he actually said to me, look, you're actually a really good writer. If you get good enough, you can pay someone to fix your spelling. Yeah. And it was sort of, it was that ethos that sort of came through and I kept writing and it was sort of, I ended up going into teaching because I sort of discovered art as well. And I thought, well, art's never going to pay the bills. So I need a real job. <laughs> and then I started doing teaching and thought I haven't really had much experience. So I started working with children while I was doing my degree and was a teacher aide. And I started doing art in special needs schools and doing art programs and just loved it and just fell in love with it and sort of stopped doing my art and just passionate about teaching and sort of, I think this year I've sort of been teaching full-time for 17 years and it's sort of, I just wouldn't give it up for a day. Fantastic. And look, I think that's part of what makes you a good teacher is that passion. I find you've got to have the passion and love what you do to teach well. Would you agree? I think teaching is really hard if you don't want to do it. Yeah. I think it's one of those jobs, it's very hard to fake. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. You've got to have the passion, you've got to love what you're doing. And I think particularly working with children, this, it's so rewarding as well. You know, you teach them, but they teach you. And it's kind of a very, I find a very reciprocal kind of interaction. Is that your experience? Well, I think it's still sort of every day is different. And I've been in the classroom forever, since I was sort of four or five years old, I've been in the classroom. And <laughs> yeah. every day as a student or a teacher is different and you learn something as both. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if we can talk a little bit about dyslexia, and I know it's something that you know you do talk about and have uh, spoken about at conferences, et cetera. Take us back to your childhood, because I'm wondering, what was it like for you? You've mentioned year 10, but what was it like for you in your primary school years when the spelling and the reading and the, all the writing, all that was being taught? Can you remember what are your childhood memories of that time in your life when you were learning it all? It's really interesting in a sense that I sort of went to school in the 80s where the only people that were diagnosed with dyslexia were people that inverted letters. Yeah. And sort of that wasn't me. It was just the fact that I couldn't spell. I couldn't read orally very well. And, you know, every report cover in kindergarten said that my spelling is atrocious. And everything that I've sort of looked at since and all the dealings with children have had since, if you had my upbringing with every piece of writing headed back you with red pen all over it, yeah. you shouldn't like it. And there should be something where you stop doing it. And I just never did. And I was stubbornly kept on writing because I actually enjoyed the story so much. And I drove my teachers nuts. I mean, I just kept penning in these epic pieces of writing with words that I had no hope of spelling. And yeah. they would hand back these, you know, massive things that they tried to And I had a great bunch of teachers who tried to read through it and spent hours trying to decode it. Yeah, and kept recommending that I do this and that. And it just never sunk in. And I wasn't diagnosed as a student as dyslexic until... I started teaching myself and suddenly realised I had a student in my care who was dyslexic. Yes. How old were you? How old were you, Paul, when you're kind of like, hey? Yeah, well, I was probably 25, 26. Really? Wow. And it was sort of, I went through this, you know, ticker box for, is this child dyslexic? And before that, I would keep going, oh, this child's fine. I've got all these traits and I turned out okay. But I had this student who I knew was dyslexic and was trying to push him to get tested and diagnosed and went through all the tests with him and everything that I ticked with him, I had myself. Yeah. And so what was amazing was as an adult, I went through the whole process. I went to speech pathologists, I went to clinics, I went to everything. Got, and it was a really interesting process because I had the meta language to actually be able to talk about what I was seeing, how I was decoding. It was a really interesting thing. And even as a teacher, a lot of spelling programs don't work for me because they'll sort of, they'll teach you all the different phonetic structures. And so I'll know 10 different ways to spell a word, but have no idea which one's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. 
And look, that, I've got to say that you're right, over the years, and you're talking about schooling in the 80s, and over the years, dyslexia, which has even changed names and all sorts of things over time, and you know, now we'll call it all sorts of things, you know, specific learning difficulties or dysgraphia, if we're talking about writing and dyscalculia, like we have all these little sub-branches of things. But in essence, you persevered, you kept trying, you kept applying yourself, you never gave up, and you basically got to a point that you had tertiary education. So you had some amazing strategies going on, Paul, which you've got to share because there are others out there that are probably like going, but how did you get to 25 and get your teaching degree and everything else? And what I've found, and I know you want to get into answering this one, but I have found that in all the kids that I've met and even adults, their brains, everyone's brains are amazing, but their brains have worked in such different ways because they've worked out amazing strategies to be able to do the things they've needed to do in their daily life. And so the way that their brains work around stuff is just fascinating. So tell us, what were you doing? How did you get to where you got to? It is, I never really thought about it. Until recently, I was asked to do a conference in New Zealand, and that was virtually the question, how did I actually get through it? And I actually went through and tried to analyse what happened. And my elder brother is sort of four years older than me and clearly dyslexic, but huge hearing difficulties when he was younger. And so he went through kindergarten completely not being able to hear at all. And it wasn't until the end of kindergarten they picked up that he was almost deaf. Wow. And so they got grommets and things and fixed it up sort of thing and everything was great. And then they assumed the rest of his schooling that everything was just because he didn't hear. And so every time a teacher would say, oh, he can't spell or he can't do this, oh, okay, he had this hearing problem, that's what it was. But my parents, to overcompensate when I was sort of learning to speak, were really careful to make sure I heard everything, make sure of it, and really overcompensated with that. So I became very much an audible learner. Yes. And so I learned very quickly in school, you don't have to actually read everything. The teachers will tell you everything they want you to know. And so even in high school, if you were reading a novel and you didn't actually read it, the teacher would tell you all the key points. And so I have a really good retention for actually being able to listen to something and retain that information. And so I would just give it back to them. They'd give me an assignment. They'd tell me everything they wanted to have in it. I would recall that and give it back to them. And, you know, I wouldn't be getting A's, but I'd easily be getting C's. Wow. And if you're in the middle of the class, no one's concerned. It's only yeah. when you're right at the top anyone's sort of worried. And so I have this, and even now, I rely on my memory a lot. Every time I'll hear something, I'll still be able to retain it. When I started casual teaching, I could walk into a classroom and know all the kids' names by recess. Yeah. Because I just have that being able to rely on my memory was such a big key thing. Yeah. But I'm just so trained to pick up things audibly and retain that, that that was my primary sense of information. And I didn't realize that I wasn't necessarily reading as retaining as much. And I mean, these days I've taught myself to get around different things and I just enjoy books. And it wasn't until sort of, I think when I went through it, it was 16 when I read my first novel. Wow, 16. And I just avoided it. Yeah. And I was able to avoid it. And it was only the fact that I had this teacher that actually said, this is a book that's actually going to be, and, you know, I would read every sentence again and again and read a page again and have to go through the chapter again and still didn't tweak that there was something not quite right with my reading. Wow. But got through this book and it was sort of, it turned me on to actually reading books. And even now, when I orally read, I'll have to, I like to read things before I orally read it just because I'll stumble over words. But I would not stop reading books now and, you know, get a good book and you'll find a way to get through it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So look, perseverance is definitely one of the big things for you, obviously, obviously. And I think it sounds like, as you said, that auditory component of learning, which I see a lot as the component of learning that is struggling the most in kids, and you're kind of the opposite because you've had to compensate. So yes, you had that visual of whatever was in front of you, but not so much in the print format. 
but you just really strengthen those auditory muscles and the working memory muscles. So they would be super strong, basically. Yeah. And reading books, now we want to obviously talk about your children's book, My Story, because that's been amazing. But before we get there, before we get there, I want to take it back a step because you mentioned your parents and they kind of overcompensated a little bit with you due to your brother. But you've also mentioned them as being quite nurturing in terms of allowing your creativity to develop. How were they doing that? Do you remember how they were doing that? My parents were very conservative and I had two older brothers that very much bit a cliche of being like them and sort of my dad was very much a tradesman and my mum was more of an academic and I sort of always fit in the middle and no one ever sort of knew where to peg me and it wasn't a time when, you know, there was after school drama and after school art clubs and those sort of things didn't exist and it was just sort of I was odd and they 100% accepted that I was odd and, I mean, for Christmas presents for years I would get just blank notepads because that was just, and I mean, they're expensive at the time. And, it, you know, it's the $3 pad now, but at the time that was an expensive thing. And it's one of those things where I always joke that I don't remember presents having boxes because there was not a lot of money growing up. Yeah. But I would always get these blank notepads and it was just, I could write and I could draw and I could just have, and, you know, even in my teen years, I used to get embarrassed by handing stories into my teachers, but I always wanted to write. And yeah. so I used to have clothes stacked around my room and my drawers just full of stories. Fantastic. And they obviously saw it. They're like, we're going to keep building this passion. They could see you were passionate about it. And that was your freedom. It was kind of that point of liberation for you, wasn't it? Where you could just be free on that notepad. And they neither of them understood it, but there was never a negative word to it. There was always understood that I was a bit different. Yes. And so although they didn't know where, they didn't know where the square hole was for me. They only had the round holes for things that they knew that there was something out there. And so they just kept going. And I mean, I, wouldn't like to have been in their shoes at the time necessarily because I was such a conundrum for them. Yeah. And there wasn't the opportunity, like now the opportunities of being able to, you know, get online and find like-minded people all over the world is such a benefit to what it was then. And it was very isolated sort of small towns and sort of small communities that, that didn't have that, oh, there's another child exactly like this around the corner. Yes, yes, yes. But, yeah, there was just that unconditional acceptance and let's just follow his passion and interests. Basically, they just kept it simple and that kept you happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I still don't know, and uh, you know, just pure stubbornness, I still don't know how I kept writing. It doesn't make sense that I would in a sense that it was one of the most challenging things for me, but I always just so much enjoyed the story and yes. actually being able to express the story. And I mean, I still remember lying in bed, not being able to sleep because if the story was going around and around in my mind, I couldn't sleep. Yeah. Where if I wrote it down, I could actually go to sleep. And so, you know, in the morning, I'd have just sheets of paper all over my floor for the story they'd written the night before. Fantastic. Because that was the way I could get to sleep. Yeah. Well, that was the artist in you, Paul, wasn't it? Just that form <laughs> of expression, you know, and writing is one of it. And you're absolutely right. For a lot of writers and authors, we often have stuff going whizzing around in our minds that unless we actually put it on paper or get it out, it's not helpful for us. Yeah. It's kind of the strategy, the form of expression. Industry. But it's very much one of those, it's hard to explain if your mind doesn't work that way to someone who doesn't. It's, it's one of those right. concepts people don't always understand. And I didn't have a kin when I was growing up to that could say, you know, this is how creative works because there wasn't those sort of people around. Yes, yes. Well, look, well done. As I said at the start, you've been an inspiration and I want to hear more about 
how you've been an inspiration to others, but you've obviously been a massive inspiration to lots of kids and even lots of parents out there that would be in a similar situation to yourself, Paul, where there wasn't that you know specific diagnosis, but they're now parents and they can see something going on with their children and then they're trying to help their children as best they can. So it's really multi-leveled, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, the people that you're touching, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where parenting is exceptionally hard. And I mean, when your child's exactly like you, it makes sense that how they are, but they so rarely are that you sort of have to find a way to navigate that. Can I ask you something a bit to the side here? But I imagine, you know, growing up, it would have had its challenges somewhat in the schooling system. But did you ever experience, like, you would have had that awareness, like, I'm a little bit different, I've noticed. I'm finding this a bit tricky. How did you go with peers? Did you ever have situations where peers would kind of make any comments? What were your resilience tactics? I think the biggest resilience I had was I was quick-witted. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where, because of my memory retention, if somebody ever said something, I'd retain it. And so I had ammunition on people. And so... I was always able to throw a joke and diffuse situations quickly. And, you know, people would be stunned that I would know something, but done because they told me the same thing a month earlier and I actually remembered it. Yeah. Because sense of humour is one of those things that seems to be able to diffuse situation quickly. Yeah. And I was never a target for a bully or anything else because I was oddly confident and I yeah. don't know why. <laughs> I should mean it. It doesn't make sense that I was. I mean, I wasn't hugely popular. I was sort of one of those kids that sort of was often quiet in class and I sort of, I would need to listen in class so that I'd get through classes. And so I was a fairly studious sort of child, especially by appearance. And so, but I just, I never found school one of those places that was hostile. I mean, I've experienced a lot of parents now and a lot of dyslexic children who have that school avoidance where they sort of, it's a place they don't want to be and don't want to go. And I never had that. Mm. And I mean, I didn't go to my primary school. It was just the local school that I was sort of around and to sort of what happened but everyone sort of was just trying to get their own way through. And I was sort of, I wasn't a target because everyone else was just sort of doing their own thing at the time. I always felt different, but I always, that was okay. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. And you've touched on something important there. And I wonder, what do you say to a dyslexic child who is avoiding school? What would you say directly to that child that just doesn't want to go because it is hard, because they know it's hard, because they are different? What are your words to that child? I don't know that I wish there was a sentence that I could give. I wish there was something that would work universally. I think the biggest thing with schooling and with life, if you can find a passion, no matter what it is, then you can get through. Yeah. And I think that if you find something in school or something around the school that you actually enjoy doing, no matter how small it is, it makes everything else easier. Yeah. And I still remember, you know, being given these creative writing things and just utterly enjoying the process. And then getting back this piece of work just covered in red pens and scribbles and scrolls and teachers trying to fix grammar and spelling and everything else and completely ignoring the story. But I enjoyed the process. And although I wouldn't get the grades or the results or anything else that came from it, the sheer process of creatively writing and developing a story from something, I enjoyed that so much that I never took steed in the teachers trying to correct things. It never could. And my parents were not ones that were saying, you should be getting A's in English, you should be pushing this grade because they weren't focused on that. They were happy that I was continuing to go through school and working hard and they could see that I was working hard and so that was enough for them. There was no expectation from the outside that I had to get to a certain level or a certain point. Yep. And, I mean, my eldest brother ducks his high school. My next brother down was in support classes his entire schooling and I was always just in the middle and I sort of I 
have this ridiculous retention for Bartry facts. I can just remember dates and times and things that makes no sense. But I just had that knack for being able to just retain things stupidly that never made school feel like a foreign place. And once I discovered that I actually read a book and find a novel enjoyable, I suddenly, you know, we had this year 10 teacher, and I think I'm about this one teacher, this guy that decided that the bottom English class he was going to introduce Macbeth. Yeah. And, I mean, Macbeth and Merchant of Venice we looked at in year 10 for the lowest English class, which makes no sense at all. But, you know, he showed us the comedy in Shakespeare and we looked at the jokes and explained where the humour came from. You know, suddenly you've got a class full of year 10 boys who have not really read anything, struggling to decipher anything, discussing Macbeth and the stories and the jokes behind the, this and that. You know, he spoke to us in a way that made sense. Fantastic. And, you know, it's amazing how one person saying the right thing at the right time can just shift an entire paradigm of life. And, sort of, and I like to think that I've actually said the right things to some people. I'm sure I've said a lot of wrong things to other people, but I think if we can all sort of just have that compassion and sort of see that we can make a difference very easily, one sentence can be retained forever and it's just that right time to. And I think for parents that have dyslexic children, for parents that have any child with a learning disability at all, the sheer stubbornness in not giving up on them, you can find that right sentence sometime. And my parents took my older brother to the library every single week. And they didn't pause anything on him. They just said, we're going to go to life. And they sat there for half. And every week he would just sit in the chair, not read for half an hour, and then they'd go home. And, but they stubbornly, because there wasn't a lot that they just they had to increase his reading. So they took him to the library every week and he hated it. But they continued every week, hoping that one time he'd pick up something and actually read. And I don't know that he ever did, but it was just that they had to try something. They were ridiculous. It's whatever he wanted to do, but that was what they thought they could do. And yep. so my dad would read more, my mum would read more just to show that role modeling of reading. And they would try and get him on anything, every magazine, everything you can imagine to try to get a topic you actually enjoy reading, just to try to find that switch to turn it on. Yes, yes. And sometimes it is that kind of that search for you know, different ways to, you know, and your parents just sound amazing, by the way. You know, they're doing all the theoretical things that we'd be saying, like model reading to your kids and go to the library. And that's what we still say today, Paul, you know, and yeah. I take my hat off to them because they obviously were amazing and they kept persevering and that's obviously a genetic trait from what you're telling me um, perseverance so so I think the the key message here though is obviously you know don't give up accept your child for what they can do look for their strengths encourage those strengths and help them find those passions and that's kind of the basic principles from what I can hear in terms of your upbringing it's always it's the oddest place like I mean I always joke that I literally started art because the year 11 class that I could choose that as an elective just had all the girls in it. <laughs> so there was 15 people in the class and there was two guys. The motivational factors, yep. <laughs> no interest at all except for the fact that there were so many girls in the class. And, you know, loved it. And then ended up doing a fine art degree because I just found this passion in art that I never thought I did. And it was just, you know, it was that time when I sort of suddenly found something. And the best thing about, you know, the globalisation of internets and modernness is there's so much exposure, so many niches. Yes. And that finding a passion of being able to find, you know, somebody like you. And I remember when I went to uni and suddenly there was people that thought the same way I did. And I'd never been exposed to that. And it was just that sheer thing of there are people that are similar to me in some sort of regard. And, you know, just those conversations with people over obscure things yes. because you were suddenly in a larger pool that you'd suddenly seen people that were different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Now, I want to get to my story, your children's picture book, and it's got a really cool book trailer as well for anyone that wants to check it out on YouTube. And by the way, we've got to say my story, your book title is spelt S-T-O-R-E-E. So we've got to make that clear. If anyone is kind of going to go Googling it, it's my story, S-T-O-R-E-E. Just because you can't spell doesn't mean you can't write. And that is 100% true. And even last episode, chatting to a very experienced teacher about writing, and that was her motto too. Don't worry about the spelling. Let's just get the content out. Let's get your ideas out. Let's just get it out, you know. So your book, My Story, obviously, it's been super helpful and valuable to heaps of children and families. And I'm thinking from two sides. Obviously, the, the kids that can kind of go, oh, I relate to this. I kind of see where this guy's coming from. I don't feel alone. But then you've also got that aspect of building empathy, you know, for others in kind of understanding, you know, what is going on for someone who does think about things differently. Tell us a bit about my story. You know, obviously, it's your story. We've already talked about your story. But tell us a bit about your book, My Story, because it's even that trailer that, you know, I watched and I was like, it's just, it's even got the music. It's like really empowering. It's like, we've got this, you know, stuff the spelling, stuff the grammar, just get the content out. You know, it's that kind of vibe. Talk to me about the book, you know, and what's been happening since its publication. Yeah. So it's the the very first draft I wrote. It's literally my own story. So I I wrote the story of, of how I sort of was writing and sort of loving the writing but hating school where I was corrected and there's this scene with the hating the red pen on the work and then this teacher started and accepted the child writing and actually encouraged him just to write. But my very first draft, I spelled every single word wrong and I, I wrote everything phonetically and had all this spelling and then I wrote one that was perfectly spelled and I sent it to my editor and I said, look, I've got this idea for this book where I want to tell this story of this child who can't spell but can write but I want to spell all the words wrong so people sort of have that understanding. And they just said, look, it's never going to happen. And then they said, can you do something in the middle where sort of every word's not spelt wrong, it's sort of just a few of them. And so there were sort of two or three words spelt wrong and then on each sort of spread. And she sort of, she read it and said, look, marketing is never, ever going to pass this. You cannot print a book that has spelling mistakes. And then she said, leave it with me. Sort of, you know, I've been through plays and things and producers and stuff before and leave it with me normally means it's never going to happen. Yeah. But... She got back to me sort of a month later. Look, said, I've asked an illustrator to let me mock up the entire book. Oh, wow. And so normally how it works is you'll sort of, you'll sign the contract, you'll have all the right at the author and then you sort of exit the picture, publisher will sort of find illustrators and all that stuff will go. But she said, this illustrator's mocked up everything. So, the, so Ashka actually wrote the illustrations for the entire book, mocked the whole thing up. She said, the only way we're going to get it through marketing is they can actually see what the book looks like. And so Ashka also does graphic design. So, she, she, so how the font works is the font for the words that are spelled phonetically or differently is different fonts, so you can sort of I'd clearly identify what's happening. Anyway, marketing saw it, loved it straight away, and it sort of went through from there. And it was sort of, and then Ashka ended up working with sort of 70 children in WA that had dyslexia and learning difficulties, where she took the book to them, shared it with them, and they wrote their own stories. And then there's little tiny illustrations and bits and pieces that are inside the book based on their stories as well. Fantastic. Our thing was always, you know, it gets 70 plus people who should never have been published getting this book published together. But what she found when she was doing it was children that had dyslexia didn't stumble on the words that were spelt phonetically. Mm. And so they read as equally as fluently when the word was spelt wrong. But children that were very confident readers would get to the word spelt wrong and suddenly stumble over it. And so it suddenly had that empowerment of those children that were suddenly reading better than their peers in this bizarre book. And 
it's gone really well. I've sort of heard, and it's interesting though, it's sort of the idea of the book, some teachers still find really scary. And it's especially sort of an American audience where there's been very emotive reviews over people who have not read it, complaining about the fact that this book's been written with some mistakes in it. But I've still yet to have anyone that's actually read it that doesn't get it. Yeah. And it's one yeah. of those things where when someone sees it in print and realizes how the process works, and it's sort of, you know, my philosophy is always if a child's going to see a word spelt wrong and suddenly start spelling it that way, they weren't my target audience to begin with. Yeah. Because if I could see a word spelt once and that's going to do it for me, then I'm not going to be a problem. But it's one of those things where I've had teachers that talk about how they use it as a spelling guide. They sort of they, they read the book to the kids, have them pick out the words that aren't spelled right, and that's their discussion. Yeah, yeah. I have kids that are really able readers that can pick it straight away and talk about it and kids that aren't, that can't see anything wrong with it at all. And it's one of those really interesting sort of things where it's really good at starting a discussion. It's mm-hmm. really good at sort of being able to share that story. And I see myself as somebody who has dyslexia or, or has this spelling thing and reading thing and has become successful through it. And I think that a lot of the reason I've become successful is from the message in this story. Absolutely. And so it's one of those where, yeah. Yeah, where I wanted to share that story. That was sort of if everything was spelled correctly and everything was fine, I think it'd still be a story that'd be worth listening to. Yeah. And is that kind of was that the impetus, I guess, that you felt it was important to write that story or your story? Yeah, it was interesting. So I keep writing about myself and where, how I got into writing books at all, I, I sort of I wrote this competition for a kids' book review and it was this national unpublished manuscript competition where you had to write this and you won a prize money. I cannot remember, honestly, I cannot remember how much prize money it was, but the real prize was you got to go straight to an editor with this manuscript. And so I wrote this story called Bed Slug and it was about this kid that wanted to stay in their pyjamas all day and their grandmother left them and they turned into a bed slug and blah, blah, blah. And it went to the publisher and they didn't like it at all. You know, and I suddenly thought, oh, wow, I've made it. And I just didn't. And so it won this national competition, but didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And then I was talking to somebody I knew because I'd sort of joined the CBCA to sort of get around authors sort of people. And they said, oh, I'll try this other publisher. And so I sent it to EK and they said, oh, no, we don't like it at all. But we sort of write these stories about heart and emotion and sort of true characters sort of things. If you want to write something else, we'd love to read it. And so I literally went home and wrote a story about my grandmother. And my grandmother had dementia. And so I wrote this story about a relationship between a woman with dementia and a grandchild, not thinking that I was writing a story about dementia, but literally just a story that I had about my grandmother. And it suddenly went ridiculous. And sort of, you know, I was sort of talking to the Guardian in the UK and it was sort of full page articles. And I sort of like, I was on British radio, it's sort of like 4 million people. It was like this ridiculous explosion of stories. You know, it's just been translated into its seventh language. It's now in Chinese. It's sort of this epic story. And it's sort of people talk about how it's a story about dementia and it's not for me. It's just a story about my grandmother. Yeah. And it's that personal sharing of that sort of story. And my story is the same. It's literally just my story of how I coped with dyslexia that because it's honest and because it's sort of true and sort of how I got through it, it translates to people. Yeah. And the incurable imagination is the same. It was this idea of I was terrified of my daughter starting school being this really imaginative kid who had all this energy and imagination suddenly being forced to conform to, you know, timetables and spell like that sort of structure of schooling. And it was that dream of what if a kid could change the school rather than a school change the kid. I and like that. the acute imagination is that idea of a child entering school and their imagination changing everything else rather than their imagination being squashed by the school controlling that. 
And it's just that, and I, you know, the next couple I had out is sort of the same sort of thing. It's just that I think that a picture book can be a powerful thing when it's honest. And I think just sharing that honest story and trying to sort of, you know, peel back the layers and get rid of any insecurities about that just translates to people. Totally, totally, Paul. And what you're describing there is that the personal stories have worldwide connection or global connection. You're talking about something that's personal to you, but you just have no idea how many other people can relate to that until you do write a book and you go, whoa, okay, all right, okay, I'm onto something here. It's one of those, it's, they're global themes, I guess. You know, they're things that other people think, but they don't have that same form of expression or that avenue that obviously you do as platform, as an author. So that global connection is really what connects everyone. Okay, it's about his grandma, but it's about my grandma too, or it's about my partner. It's about, you know, so that's, I guess, what you see is just that widespread, really quick fire connection that your personal stories have. And, and I think that's a pretty special feeling. I mean, how did it feel for you? I think it's amazing. There's been a couple of sort of key milestones. I think the first time I talked about Grandma Forgets to an audience, I had this man come up to me who was, you know, in his mid-40s in tears. And he was sharing these positive memories he had of his mother of had dementia. And since that, I think every time I sort of talk about it publicly, I'll have someone come and share their own experience. And I think the positive thing in Grandma Forgets is that I don't mention the word dementia at all. And it's a very positive relationship they have, even though the grandmother forgets everything that's important. She doesn't, the child doesn't forget to tell them. And the sort of the final line is, we tell her we love her every day in case she forgets. It's that sort of thing. And I think that what I've been able to get is all these people come and share their stories with me, but they're always positive. Yeah. And I think that too often with dementia, as it sort of declines, the last part of it is so dreadful that you often forget all the good parts before that. And I think the best part about Grandma Forgets was that it was able to allow children of grandparents to be able to think of positive things and actually see positive aspects and the parents able to talk to their own children with positive things. And I sort of, I've had, you know, really positive responses from people talking about this horrible disease. And I think the dyslexia books are similar. It's that sense of, I don't mention the word dyslexia. I don't mention that at all. It's just this kid that likes to write. And it's from his point of view and he sort of, he finds an avenue to do that. And I think that people that share that have that opportunity to be able to see somebody else going through it or something else or start that conversation that I think is an amazing thing. And, you know, there's little things that happen that sort of blow you away when you sort of, you know, you'll see somebody reading it in Indonesia or there's a Thai version of the book that's English on one side that's being used to help teach English, which just sort of blows my mind. But <laughs> yeah. it's those sort of things where the little moments are amazing of sort of, you know, people coming and sharing their stories. And I was recently in New Zealand and sort of had books for sale sort of all day and sort of didn't really sell any books and then did a talk for, you know, an hour or whatever, an hour and a half I think it was, and then suddenly sold out books in five minutes because I think that when you realise the personal nature of a story, it suddenly speaks volumes. And I think that with adults, maybe with kids always, if you lie to a child or try to patronise a child, they see straight through you. Yeah. But as soon as you open up to them, they open up back. Yeah. Yeah. And there you're kind of just talking about being authentic and being congruent with what you write, essentially. I guess it's easier said than done. It just doesn't seem to be done as popular as often as you would think it should be, maybe. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of those things that for a lot of people and for some writers, you know, I'm not going to generalize, but everyone's got a different personality. 
and writing is very personal. So for some, they just want to keep it to themselves and, and sharing it is just absolutely petrifying because it is so personal and because you don't want to be judged on something that is so personal. You know what I mean? So you just, that readiness to share is huge. It's one of those things too, though, where when you write picture books, the story is only half yours. And I think it's one of those things where when you have an illustrator, like Grandma Forgets is a good example because the lead character turned out to be a young girl. And so suddenly I was, this, you know, it wasn't necessarily just my story when it was illustrated. And so it's one of those things where I, I think there's as much story from the illustrator as there is from the author. Yes. And so no matter how personal a story is that you share, when somebody else interprets that in their own way, it's suddenly this new form. And so I've never felt invaded or I've never felt like somebody is judging me from a book because I think the book is always that different step, even though it's my story or it's part of my life or it's that really honest thing when I write it. I think by the time the book's actually produced and the illustrators had their influence as well, the story that comes out is always that it's something different. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, as I said, it's one of those things that you've got to just have that courage to take that step. You know, if you love writing, don't let it discourage you. If your spelling's not great, just keep writing, just keep expressing yourself, keep that form. And if you get rejections, you know, we say it all the time in the industry, like, don't take it personally. I mean, that's one of those things that needs practice sometimes because, you know, you're a great example of that. Just be honest, be authentic, be congruent. And then kind of let it work its magic or let it work its way. I think it's also like the Australian industry especially is so small for actually accepting new authors and publishing new sort of works. I think actually going through schooling and having every teacher reject what I've written helps to sort of when you send it to publishers and every publisher says, you know, I never took it personally from a teacher and I never took it personally from a publisher. And, I mean, I was sending things to publishers at sort of 18 and I didn't publish my first book until, like, you know, early 30s. And so yes. it's sort of, you know, it's like 15 years of getting things and, you know, it makes sense that when people tell you no, 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 that you stop, but I just didn't. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I think that the best thing about the Australian industry with authors is that you get that rejection and you either give up, which, you know, if you're giving up, then it wasn't you to begin with. But I think that it does make you better. And I mean, I still think there's things that I've written when I was, you know, 10 years ago or more rejected that I still think is better than things that are out there now necessarily at certain things. But I think that I'm a better writer now because of it. And I think if I had found a really easy avenue to get published early on, I never would have honed the skills that I've developed through, you know, rejection and rejection and going on and building stronger and finding that niche and finding that avenue to keep writing. And I think too often children and adults, I guess, think that the first draft is the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, but I mean, for spelling and everything else, but I mean, I heard Sarah Davis talk one time, who's an illustrator, and she just said that the only thing special about your first draft is that it's your first draft. And I think that whole idea of, I mean, a lot of authors are naturally really good at literacy, which sort of makes sense for them to be authors, but they still do a first draft that is just getting things down and then go back and work it and work through it. And I often find that the creative ideas I find quick and natural. I'm a very quick writer. Sort of, oh, Someone will ask me to do an article or something, I'll sort of have it the next day because I sort of I always write very quickly. Yeah. But think that I've always been able to write quickly and spend my time going through editing grammatical structure and spelling, whereas a lot of people that are able to nail that have to go back and work on the creative. Yeah. And, I mean, I've heard of, like, authors that will spend five years writing a novel or ten years writing a novel. I can't imagine that because I sort of, you know, that ADHD of wanting to get the story out and wanting to get something. And I think when you write a novel, you live the story and so you just want to write it and want to get and find out what happens next. Yeah. And my writing style has always been, I get a character and an idea and I start at the beginning and I don't know how things can go. 
And so I will write to find out myself what's going to happen next, which sounds odd if you're not that sort of person, but I can't put it down. (laughs) You know, I wrote a murder mystery for this competition and and I always joke, but I didn't know who'd done the murder myself until I got to that part of the story where it sort of made sense that that's who was going to do it. But the idea of planning everything out methodically before I start takes the fun out of writing the story and living the story. And I think that there's so many different processes to do something. We just expect children to all be able to do it. You know, there's nothing worse than I can imagine a teacher saying, you have an hour to write a, a, a piece of writing. Here's your time. Start now. Go. And I'll collect in 50 minutes. You know, it's that sort of expectation we have on children that we would never place an author. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, we won't go into that topic of the academic world and how we would restructure certain parts of the curriculum and expectations, etc. And I think through what you've discussed, Paul, there's so many really valuable practical strategies, even for kids who are kind of finding it difficult with all those constraints that are at school. You know, you're offering just ways that they can be okay with it. Like just come home, have that freedom, write, put your ideas down. You don't have to have everything mapped out, but just kind of throw yourself in and give it a go is almost kind of the the approach that I'm hearing in some ways. I think it's one of those things I always had a passion about the actual story. Yes. And I mean, I think that if a child reads with their eyes or if they read it, listen to a book, an audio book, they've still read the book. I think that if a child writes by drawing pictures or writing words, they're still expressing the story. And I think that broadening of what we see as a story and how we interpret how a child reads a story is that thing that allows them to experience it. And I mean, as a child, watched so many movies because that was the sort of the best way to sort of experience a story that I sort of found the easiest way to think of it. You know, I had cassettes of movies that I sort of would listen to again and again. And I sort of, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark, I know almost every word to because I sort of followed that book with the cassette just again and again. But I think that passion for the story is really what we need to try to get children on board with and we'll find a way to get to address it. I mean, if they get an app that converts their text, their, their words to text or if they listen to it or if they draw it or, you know, there's so many opportunities to be able to express that. And I think that the broader we can make opportunities to get stories down, the more stories we can hear. And I think that in the past we were limited to text and that cut people out. And I think that now the opportunities to be able to broaden that allows so many more people in to share their stories. And I think we're all the richer for it. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think there's definitely pros to the world we live in and what we have access to. Definitely. So, Paul, I've got to just check in with you on parents and educators out there are probably wanting to go out and check out your story and the book because I think as a platform itself, it's fantastic, as you said before, just to start a discussion, whether it's to link with kids that are struggling or to link with kids to build that empathy or to just understand, well, why struggling to read this, you know, and to have that almost meta conversation about the complexity of spelling rules, the complexity of all of that, but to really just get to the the person behind it. And I think that's where my story is really, really powerful and a great platform to start that conversation for parents, families, and professionals that work with kids. Are there other kind of websites or things like that that you'd recommend? Because there are parents that are probably thinking, well, what else can I do? You know, they're in that web of seeing a speech pathologist and following certain programs and trying everything they can like your parents did. Are there any websites or resources apart from some of the stuff that you've got that you would recommend where they can have a look at different things on offer? I think you hit the nail on the head when you said never give up. I think it's one of those things where 
it's fascinating what a Google search can bring up and bring forth and everything else. And I think that every situation is different. You know, I've done talks with Spelled and sort of those organisations that are sort of specialising in things, but I've done a lot of things with just the most bizarre and, you know, blogs and web articles and just things that are these really tiny niche markets that just speak to the right person. And I'm always reluctant to sort of point people in a set direction in a sense that it's such a broad spectrum. And I think that the biggest challenge for anybody is to try to find like-minded people. And I think if you are open to search and open to sort of look through things, the world's small enough now in a sense that there's somebody out there going through exactly what you're going through. And being able to find them and connect with them is the best opportunity you have. And as a teacher, I am never, ever worried about a child who still has parents that are coming and asking, what can I do to help? And I think as long as the parents on board with education, they find a way to get successful. And it's hard work. And if you've got a child that is struggling with school or struggling with getting to school on reluctant, it's hard work. At the moment, I'm teaching year six. And by the time they get to year six, if the parents are still on board and still there and still reading with the child every night, helping them with every assignment, going through speech presentations with them all the time, they're halfway there. And yeah. it's that belief that they're, that you can be there and help the child through and not give up and just knocking on doors and you'll find one. You know, sometimes it's instant, sometimes it's a hard slog to get through. And I still remember my brother going through year 10 exams back in the day when that was sort of the leading certificate and mum sitting up every night and going through every assignment with him, rewriting everything for him and then him copying it down, going through every word of every assignment just to get him through. Wow. And he got through him. You know, he's really successful now and he still hasn't picked up many books besides the ones I've written. <laughs> yeah. yep. He's successful in life. You know, he's got a family, really, he's got a really good job. He's, sort of, he's, he's found success. Yes. And I think that the resilience you can build in somebody going through schooling can be as important as literacy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a life skill. Paul, you're an absolute inspiration. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining the Chat About Children podcast today. Where can we learn more about your books and your book reviews and other things that you have to offer? Where do we learn more about you, Paul? EK Books is a good start, but if you just Google any of the titles, there's lots of reviews and things and talking about. There's YouTube things for Grandma Forgets and My Story at the has a trailer as well. There's, there's lots of things, but there's teacher resources on ekbooks.org that sort of has things that go with all the books too. But hopefully we're everywhere. Sort of it seems to be getting around. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. And I'm, again, very grateful that you've taken the time to share your story through your stories. So thank you so much for joining the Chat About Children. You're very welcome. Thank you. A remarkable story there and chat with Paul Russell. He also does have a couple more children's books in the pipelines for the upcoming year. So keep an eye out for his wonderful work. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Chat About Children, I encourage you to please leave a review and to share this episode with family, friends and colleagues who you know will benefit from the information. Please remember to also subscribe to the Chat About Children podcast if you haven't already done so. Thank you so much for joining me for today's chat. I appreciate you. I celebrate you and I look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com.